chapter 13 chapter entitled description of future manus verse 1 shri shuka vacha manur vivasvatah putrah श्रद्धा देव इति सप्तमो वर्तमानो ट्रांसलेशन Shraddadev is the seventh manu. Now please hear from me as I describe his sons. Several verses there are no purports. So I'll read the verses till we come to a verse with purport. O king Parikshit among the 10 sons of Manu are Ikshvaku, Nabhaga, Drishta, Sharyati, Narishanta and Nabhag. The seventh son is known as Dishta. Then come Tarusha and Pushadra and the 10th son is known as Vasuman. In this Manvantara, O King, the Adityas, the Vasus, the Rudras, the Vishwadevas, the Maruts, the two Ashwin Kumar brothers and the Rubhus are the demigods. Their head king Indra is Purandara. Kashyap, Adri, Vashishtha, Vishwamitra, Gautam, Jamadagni and Bharadwaj are known as the seven sages. In this Manvantara, the supreme personality of God had appeared as the youngest of all the Adityas, known as Vamana, the Dwarf. His father was Kashyap and his mother Aditi. I have briefly explained to you the position of the seven manus. Now I shall describe the future manus along with the incarnations of Lord Vishnu. O king, I have pres- previously described in the sixth canto the two daughters of Vishwakarma namely Sangya and Chaya who were the first two wives of Vivaswan. It is said that the sun god had a third wife named Vadava. Of the three wives, the wife named Sangya had three children. Yama, Yami and Shraddhadev. Now let me describe the children of Chaya. Chaya had a son named Savarani and a daughter named Tapati who later became the wife of King Samvarana. Chaya's third child is known as Shanaishchara, Saturn. Vadava gave birth to two sons, namely the Ashwini brothers. O King, when the period of the eighth Manu arrives, Savarani will become Manu, Nirmoka and Virajaksha will be among his sons. Purport The present reign is that of Vaivaswat Manu. According to astronomical calculations, we are now in the 28th Yuga of Vaivaswat Manu. Each Manu lives for 71 Yugas and 14 such Manus rule in one day of Lord Brahma. We are, but Shukadev Goswami having having heard from authorities foretells that the eighth manu will be savarani and that nirmoka and virajaksha will be among his sons shastras can foretell what will happen millions and millions of years in the future the blessings of all the assembled vaishnavas so that i can speak something for the glorification of the lord and the purification of my filthy heart hari krishna so 
in this chapter of the shrimad bhagavatam entitled description of future manus we see a remarkable world view being described we see a universe that is replete with life at all levels is carefully administered by devatas at its various hierarchy levels we have manu and then within him we have demigods and above him we have brahma and other devatas so this is a world view which is dramatically different from what most people learn today in their educational systems so in today's class i'll talk about this world views i'll discuss four main points do world views really matter i believe something i look at the world in a particular way somebody else looks in another way does it really matter do world views really matter and then we'll discuss what are the some people may say this is very fantastic you believe there is a manu and there is a sun god and there is so we'll look at what are the different predominant world views that are available in modern society and we'll compare them then we will see uh, we will address some of the common challenges or criticisms of the bhagavat world view and lastly we will discuss about how we can imbibe this bhagavat world view in our own life at a more deeper level so when shila prabhupad met john lennon and yoko ono the first question prabhupad asked them is what philosophy do you believe what philosophy do you follow so their reply is typical of the reply of most modern people they said we don't follow any philosophy we just live we just live so most people uh, don't really think about the deeper truths of life but just live however even when we say we just live we are without our conscious choice without our conscious contemplation and decision are accepting the world view that is prevalent in society so it is not that people don't have a philosophy everybody has a philosophy now of course some philosophies might be philosophies <laughs> philosophy means the sophistry the word jugglery of fools but everybody has some sort of world view and that world view does matter so the materialistic people say that you you believe that there is a god but what difference does it make you are going to die and we are going to die but you are following so many rules and regulations and restricting yourself so much what is the use of that ultimately you are not going to be saved from death you are also going to die so in the 11th chapter of the bhagavad gita in the, in the vishwarupa darshan arjuna gets a very remarkable vision of all the warriors entering into the mouth of the vishwarup and while describing that two analogies are used yatha nadinam bhavam bhuvega and yatha pradeeptam jwalanam patanga the first analogy describes as the rivers enter into the ocean and yatha pradeeptam jwalanam patanga as the moths enter into fire so now in that vision in the vishwarup actually arjuna sees that even the good and the evil are entering not only does he see the kauravas entering but he even sees bhishma entering drona entering and he also sees many of the warriors on his own side entering rute pitam na bhavishyanti sarve rute pitam except for you o arjuna and you means you and the pandavas everybody else will be destroyed and that's what eventually happened so good and evil both are destroyed so 
if both good and evil are destroyed what difference does it make so baldev vidyabhushan in his commentary to these verses says that this analogy has a significance he says that when a river flows into the ocean it goes by its natural flow whereas when a moth enters into a fire it is by its conscious choice now one of the prominent acharyas in the shri sampradaya after ramacharya's vedanta deshika now he has written his tika on ramacharya's gita bhashya is called tatpar chandrika and in that he elaborates the import of these two analogies further he says that first of all when a moth enters into fire the moth is destroyed the moth was a living creature with a form and life and it is reduced to ashes whereas when a river enters into a ocean the river is not destroyed because the same material the same water that was there in the river continues to be there in the ocean another difference he says is that when a moth enters into the fire it just destroys it just doesn't do any good to itself it actually tries to attack and enjoy the fire and it kills itself on the other hand when a river flows through the hills and then through the plateaus and then through the plains and then enters the ocean then before entering the ocean it does so much good to the world it nourishes so many crops it provides water to so many thirsty people so like that he says even the godly people will eventually enter into death but before they die just as the river does so much good to the world the godly people do so much good to the world and thirdly he says that actually when the moth tries to enter into the fire the moth does not enter into the fire the moth just comes in contact and burns and falls aside whereas when the river enters into the ocean the river becomes uh, a part of the river ocean so he says similarly when the devotees live spiritually in this world they become a part of the spiritual nature of the lord as in the 18th chapter 55th 56 verses krishna talks about how bhaktya mam vijanati yavan yashya smitatvatha tato mam tatvato gyatva vishate tadanantaram vishanti the word used over here is vishanti there it is vishyat vishate that you know he enters into now this entering is not a merging it is like a green bird entering into a green forest so actually a devotee attains the spiritual nature and vedandeshika uh, further says that he takes this analogy of the ocean with the analogy in second chapter 2.70 where it says no matter how many rivers enter into a ocean the ocean never gets full apuryamanam achala pratishtham so he says similarly no matter how many devotees offer their love and service to krishna krishna never becomes exhausted krishna never becomes saturated krishna can accept and reciprocate with the love of everyone so yes in this world everybody whether one is a devotee or a non devotee uh, whether one accepts a spiritual world view or a materialistic world view everyone has to perish at least at the bodily level but there are two differences one is how we live and how we benefit others in this life and what happens to us at the end of this life so a devotee does good while he is here in this world and eventually he returns back to the eternal spiritual world where actually he is forever happy prabhupad writes in the 10th canto 10th chapter of bhagavata purport he says this auspicious is auspicious doesn't matter for a devotee 
because for a devotee his future is supremely bright he is going back to the spiritual world so yes our world views will make a big difference in this life and in the next life now today there are of course there are unlimited world views but the predominant world views are what is sponsored by the modern scientific education it is materialistic atheistic world view then there is the impersonalistic monistic world view which is predominant in hinduism and then there is the monotheistic world view which is there in religions like judaism christianity islam so let's briefly discuss them and then we'll come to the bhagavat world view so the modern science has this idea that that the only thing that is existing is matter so even science is actually monism monism means there is only one substance that exists mono means one so only one substance that exists so there are spiritual monists and there are material monists so the mayavadis are spiritual monists and the scientists at least the atheistic scientists are material monists they say the only thing that exists is matter matter is all that is so the amrit maharaj is searching for vedic india he says that scientists are devotees of matter <laughs> everybody has to be devotee of someone so they are devotees of matter so now if we look at generally when we start a bhagavata course we talk about the design argument how is the world is so systematically intricately delicately coordinated and harmonized and therefore it should have a designer which is quite a logical argument but somehow the way scientific history proceeded science has actually rejected the idea of god so basically we used two two arguments one is that design requires a designer and law requires a lawmaker however these two are different arguments and the law requires a lawmaker argument is often weakens the design requires a designer argument you see before newton uh, whether it was india in the west or in the east practically most people believed in god and newton himself was a believer in god in fact when newton was dying when he was asked what is the greatest achievement of your life you no know, he had done so many remarkable inventions but he said on his deathbed at the greatest achievement of my life was that i remained a celibate throughout my life now we don't learn this in our textbooks that is the newton was a celibate and in fact the later part of his life he spent as a monk in a church so he was a he was strongly devoted to god and his idea was that when he made his and would make his inventions he would say oh god i think thy thoughts after thee that means the way you have created this world i am understanding it now so for him his scientific discoveries were like spiritual revelations of god's glory however when he discovered that the world is being operated by laws that the planets are moving not just because of, there is a god making them move it is because they are moving by gravity so this led to without without newton's intention like that this led to a promotion of the materialistic world view because if everything is operating according to a law then there is no need for a designer just like if there is a lump of clay and the lump of clay we make into a nicely carved pot so that design requires a designer but if we could determine a law by which okay you put the lump of clay in a machine turn it like this turn it like that press it like this squeeze it like this pull it like this and a pot comes out 
so if we can make a mechanical law for determining what how the design will come out then the law will result in the design and there is no need for a designer so of course the law will require a law maker that's a different argument but the point is that if there is a law then there is no need for design designer specifically to bring about the design the law itself will bring about so from the time of newton atheism started coming up and when darwin came up prabhupada was so strongly critical of darwin because darwin said that even the laws can come by themselves the laws can come by themselves so whether in the west or the east there was always the idea that god is creator and controller but when newton came so that is called as theism when newton came along the idea became that god is the creator but not the controller it's just like we have a watch here the watch is obviously made by somebody but that manufacturer of the watch does not have any control over the watch so there is a creator for the watch but there is no controller for them. the creator is not the controller because the watch is operating according to laws so similarly what happened was the idea that came in is that if everything is operating according to laws there is no need for a controller so that is called as deism in uh, then after that when newton darwin came along he said there is no need for god as a creator also why because evolution can create everything and in this way god was completely exiled exiled from the academic world so now the current idea is that why do you want to bring god in the picture let's make everything understandable according to laws because why if we can make everything understandable according to laws then we can understand those laws we can control those laws and maybe we can make our own laws and basically we can take the place of god that is the agenda of modern science now shri prabhupada gives a brilliant example to illustrate the flaw of this analogy yes nature may be operating according to laws but just the laws are not enough not only do we need a law maker we need a law overseer if the laws could operate automatically i'm sure every government in the world would be very interested to know how the laws operate automatically laws need a overseer so just like if we write a computer code and then the machine runs according to computer code so there first of all there has to be a person to write the program and secondly there has to be always somebody to debug the programs you know because no matter how well the program is written bugs come in in fact because computers have bugs people have jobs <laughs> so actually there is a maintainer required but what happens is as scientists are devotees of matter they try to explain everything in terms of matter and when they come to consciousness when they come over there is a person who has life his consciousness he can perceive they start thinking okay how can this consciousness come from matter but this itself is a wrong question prabhupada gives the example that suppose somebody has been living in darkness throughout his life and he has never come to know what is light and he is moving around in darkness and making a mess of falling on people falling on things stumbling and bruising himself and suddenly he comes to light now what is the question he asks how did this darkness produce the light how did the darkness produce the light now the fact is that darkness did not produce light rather it was light that by its absence produced darkness but because of being accustomed to living in darkness the question that comes in the mind is how did darkness produce light 
similarly scientists who live in the world of matter when they come to consciousness how did matter produce consciousness that's why propa said life comes from life life does not come from matter so yes nature may be operating according to laws but the operation of nature according to laws is uh, is as we in mathematics we have a necessary but not sufficient condition just like if somebody is standing on a road outside a house and looking at a garage and suddenly a car starts coming out of the garage and you start going backwards okay why did this car start moving oh because the wheels were moving okay but why were the wheels moving oh there is a there's a mechanism connected with the wheels which caused it to move okay but why did the mechanism start moving oh because there was a spark in the ignition but why was there a spark in the ignition oh because the key was in the vertical position that meant to the horizontal position yes that is why the car started now it's a correct explanation but it's a disastrously incomplete explanation because there is a person who moved the key isn't it so like that modern science does trace trace backwards but it stops at a particular time as soon as it comes to matter it will go only to the scope of matter and it doesn't go to spirit or consciousness or life it tries to explain everything in terms of matter and the result of this is disastrous because if everything is matter when a mother sees a child or a child sees the mother now what is what are what are the emotions of love oh they are just some biochemical secretions in the brain like that now if they are just biochemical secretions in the brain then if a person becomes angry and kills someone actually this happens in america in the law courts see it's in my genes in my genes i get angry so don't blame me blame my genes <laughs> and many times in the law cases if a person is proved to be criminal and you cannot get him out then you get a certificate from a psychiatrist that his genes are like that and instead of him being punished in a jail he is moved to a mental asylum so now all of us understand that there is a sense of responsibility we may our genes may push us to behave in a particular ways but they don't control us they push us but they don't control us they prompt us but we can resist their prompting but the point is the scientific world will can lead to disaster as martin luther king predicted we have guided missiles and misguided men misguided men because we are able to control matter we are not able to control spirit at all as such the propad went to the west and he would say what is the use of your big big technology you build skyscrapers and then people cl- climb on the skyscrapers and jump down and commit suicide so what is the use yeah so science has had tremendous success but it's a very lopsided partial success where we understand matter a lot and we don't understand consciousness at all and that's why everywhere in the world people are turning towards more holistic world views more complete world views actually uh, science developed not because so much because science could explain things but developed more because religion at that time could not explain things so the judeo christian world view which was present at the time of the advent of science actually was very incomplete in its explanation recently when i had gone for a preaching tour to south india um and the train one christian preacher came to preach to me he said i want to save you i want to save you from going to hell so had an interesting talk so he said so i so we are having a discussion so i started pro past standard argument he says why uh, now the commandment said thou shall not kill this oh that refers only to humans 
Why? Because animals don't have any soul. Oh, really? But animals have consciousness. How do they have consciousness? Oh, they have spirit, they don't have soul. That is their idea. They have spirit, but they don't have soul. Oh, really? Okay. But uh, what is the difference between spirit and soul? The Prabhupada is a simple argument. All the symptoms that we have, now we feel pain, we respond to stimuli, we cherish our loved ones, we treasure life. All these are the remaining animals. Just no, no. Actually, the spirit is something which is very intangible and subtle. Now, if you see what originally Jesus taught in the New Testament, is mostly moral codes and parables. Jesus did not teach much philosophy. So the idea that animals don't have souls, it actually comes from one later Christian theologian, Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century. In fact, he had the idea that even women don't have any souls. You know, that's why women didn't have voting rights and everything, and that's why the women's liberation movement came up. But anyway, so he said, okay. So Prabhupada makes things very clear. You know, Prabhupada doesn't, you know, one of the defining characters of Prabhupada's preaching is that he makes things crystal clear. So the Christians have the idea that they have spirit but no soul. And so you ask what is the difference between spirit and soul, they are not clear. So Prabhupada says, spirit, soul. <laughs> the body is animated by the spirit, soul. So it's very clear. So then they said, okay. Then he tried, he tried to change the subject. He said, you know, if you are worried about killing, then why do you... If you are worried about life, he argued, then why don't you do something about the embryos who are being killed in the womb? Why don't you stop? Why are you so worried about animals? You worry about humans who are being killed. I said, very good. So you are against abortion? He said, of course. I said, okay, what happens to the soul? What happens to the um, soul of the child who dies? Now, according to their idea, you know, every time a man and a woman conceive, a new soul is created. And that soul lives for his particular lifetime. And if he accepts Jesus as a savior, then he will go back to God. Uh, then he will die and at the time of judgment, he will be taken back to God. And if he doesn't, then he will go to uh, hell. That is the idea for eternal damnation. So now their idea is a little problematic. For several centuries, Christian theologians have been trying to redefine the word eternal. The word eternal means no beginning and no end. But there, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita 2.20 also, Ajo Nitya Shashvato Yam Sharira. Ajo, that he has no beginning, unborn, and Nitya, eternal, no end. But their idea is that the soul is that which has a beginning but no end. So it's like, you know, basically, eternity means infinity in the realm of time. It's infinity in the realm of time. So infinity cannot be one way. You cannot be finitely infinite. <laughs> that means you cannot say that it is eternal, but it begins now. It's a logical contradiction. But they try to say that eternal means that which has beginning but no end. That is eternal. So then I asked him, okay, fine. Uh, what happens to the soul of the child who is aborted? He said, does he go to God? Or does he go to hell? He says, no, no, no. Actually, he has not committed any sinful activities. So, he goes back to God. Really? He said, yes, of course he goes back to God. And what is the goal of life? Well, it is to go back to God. Then why not abort everyone? Every 
Then he said, oh, no, 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 that is not good. <laughs> yeah, but is it not good to go back to the kingdom of God? He said, yeah, that is good. <laughs> so, our intention is not to minimize or deride any philosophy. But the fact is that from the philosophical point of view, the Christian theology is very incomplete. And uh, uh, the main reason why Christianity has spread is because they have that aggressive spirit of preaching. And more importantly is because in the Sanatana Dharma, we did not preach so effectively. Uh, so, however, so the, the Judeo-Christian worldview, because of its limitations and especially because they do not accept they do not accept the idea of past lives, so they just cannot explain why there is suffering in this world. Especially why innocent children suffer, why pe innocent people die in tsunamis and earthquakes and natural calamities, in millions sometimes. And in fact, Darwin himself wanted to become a Christian priest, and he had joined a seminary to become a Christian priest. But when his daughter died of tuberculosis, the Christian theology gave him no answers. So he said, I cannot see this world as good. I see it as evil. You say there is benevolence, but I don't see any benevolence. You now a lion attacks a deer and kills a deer. If you say that uh, there is a design, on whose side is the designer? You know, the deer is designed to run away from the lion and the lion is designed to catch the deer. So on whose side is the designer? He said, I just cannot see any good. I see only so much cruelty and suffering and evil in this world. So, the, uh, the scientific worldview spread because the religious worldview could not answer the fundamental questions of life. So, uh, now let's, we'll come to later about how the Bhagavad worldview answers this question. So, that is the uh, monotheistic or the Christian worldview. You know, the Islamic worldview is something similar, although they are much more fundamentalist, much more uh, exclusivistic in saying that our way is the only way. But basically, both of them come from the same roots. So, I won't go into that. Now we have in India the impersonalistic worldview, the Mayavadi worldview. So, if you ask Shankaracharya or his followers, now why did God create this world? The answer you will get it? The question and answer both are meaningless. Because neither God exists nor this world exists. Nor you exist. <laughs> Everything is non-existent. But then don't we perceive that everything exists? Oh, that is all because of Maya. No, your sense of I-ness, his sense of your-ness, it's all this is because of Maya. So, the only thing that exists is Brahman. But then what creates this illusion? Oh, that illusion is because of Maya. So does Maya exist or not? They say everything is one, but there is Brahman and there is Maya. So it's two, it's not one. So then does Maya exist or not? Oh, Maya is simultaneous, existent, non-existent, indefinite, all-pervading reality. Whatever that means. How can something be existent and non-existent? However, this Maya is very popular. As I said, there's a, often this, there are some college students who have this quote on their t-shirt. I was an atheist till I discovered I was God. <laughs> till I discovered I was God. So basically, by this Mayavadi worldview, it titillates the false ego like anything. Okay, I cannot be the controller and enjoyer of this world, of small, small things and activities in this world, I will be God directly. And the result of that is that people just uh, are not able to surrender to the real Lord and experience the higher taste of Bhakti. 
so sometimes we we wonder why shila prabhupada is so strongly against impersonalists it's primarily because that they deprive the innocent people of the higher taste they deprive the innocent people of the higher taste because because the mayavadis don't reject bhakti they subordinate bhakti to gyan yesterday i was telling in the brahmachari class how when our devotees had first come to jagannath puri with shila prabhupad at that time the puri administrator said that you cannot go to the you cannot the foreigners cannot enter jagannath temple then prabhupada said tell them that you know what kind of principles you are following how you are dedicated to preaching krishna's mission so then the puri administrator said you go and meet shankaracharya the shankaracharya allows then you can enter so then when they went to meet shankaracharya jayapataka maharaj went so he saw that uh, right in the sort of reception room is beautiful deity of radha krishna so he was very surprised this is mayavadi's and radha krishna deity then he remembered one conversation prabhupad said when the mayavadis get bored with their mayavad they worship radha krishna for a change so then uh, then shankaracharya came and then he explained the whole situation shankaracharya said what you are doing is very good you continue this in your next life you will born in hindu family and then you can enter jagannath so <laughs> then as jayapadam maharaj was leaving so he said you know, can i ask a question here yes. how is that you are following shankaracharya who does not believe in uh, form and how is that you are worshiping radha krishna so who is worshiping radha krishna i am worshiping myself this is brahma that is brahma brahma arpanam brahma vir brahma agnau brahmana hutam brahmaivate na gantavyam brahma karma samadina <laughs> so that is their idea that's why what happens the mayavadis may appear to be exactly like bhaktas but they actually don't have bhakti and that's why when people hear hari katha from them or hari kirtan from them they cannot get higher taste and because they cannot get higher taste they stay stuck in the lower tastes they say stuck in the lower taste and that's why although in india religion is such a predominant part of life but still you know indians are so materialistic isn't it it's so amazing if we if we try to preach to our non devotee acquaintances and friends the number one concern is money money and position and wealth now they are religious in in chennai there is a special temple of ganesh called as visa ganesh temple what is visa ganesh like ganesh is supposed to remove vigna nashak to remove obstacles so this form of ganesh is supposed to remove the obstacles for going to america <laughs> so if you are not getting visa then go and pray to visa ganesh <laughs> and you will get a you will get the visa so so it's very paradoxical that indians are so religious and still so materialistic not materialistic in a very grossly sinful sense that may be there in the younger generation where they are becoming immoral but even the older generation it's it's paradoxically it is uh, they're religious but they're also materialistic why is that because their religion does not give them a higher taste because most of the religion in india is impersonalistic so people don't get a higher taste so then religion just becomes a means to get the lower taste it means god becomes a factor to help us enjoy our material life better so that's why this mayavad is so unfortunate although it appears spiritual 
it makes people more materialistic and that's why shri prabhupada so strongly against it and that's why even when we hear hari katha it is called as sarpo chishtetha payam other word uchishta means remnants now in the bhagavata 17 chapter while describing food in the three modes krishna says that uchishtam apichamedyam that he describes that the food in the mode of ignorance if somebody has eaten something and left if we take it that is that is considered tamogul now of course if we take the mahaprasad of devotees exalted devotees that is different but generally even the uchishta of a human being is considered tamasic and untouchable then what to speak of the uchishta of a snake what to speak of the remnants of a snake so if a snake touches some milk and then use it it's poisonous although it's milk it's poisonous so like that harikatha although it may be spoken uh, in an apparently pure way but actually it does not infuse devotion in the hearts of people now you may say if you go for some of these bhagavat kathas you will find that people literally cry tears and they do seem to be getting emotions and sometimes they get more emotions than what we are getting in our bhagavat kathas so you wonder what is this emotion so actually there are mental emotions and there are spiritual emotions so um bhakti pareshanubhava viraktiranyatra cha bhakti is a science and what does bhakti do it gives us para isha anubhav it gives us experience of god and what is the result of that experience that experience of god is so satisfying that viraktir anyatra cha that it leads to detachment from all other experiences so people come to this bhagavat kathas and they hear about how jatayu was killed by ravana and they start crying tears and they come back home and they turn on the television match and they see sachin tendulkar getting out zero and they'll cry tears again <laughs> so <laughs> there is no viraktir anyatracha so and because there is no viraktir anyatracha we can understand that there is no para isha anubhav there is no para isha anubhav why because you know people are not experiencing the higher taste that's why india is religious but it's still materialistic because due to the mayavadi influence people do not get much of higher taste so now let's come to the bhagavata world view but the bhagavata is monotheistic but is not just monotheistic yes there is one god but he has many many assistants sometimes people think of hinduism as polytheistic that there are many gods but it's not like that there is one god but krishna is so merciful that if out of our latent envy for him if we are not ready to worship him he allows alternatives for us there are scripturally sanctioned alternatives for worship so in the other religions that magnanimity of god is not manifest actually it's remarkable like magnanimous imagine if you are the if you are the owner of a company you are the ceo or the owner of the company and if somebody comes into your company and starts glorifying your uh, assistant your manager somebody oh you are the ceo of the company Now for you to allow to do that it requires a very broad heart but krishna allows that because you accept somebody as authority and rise higher so actually this whole system of demigod worship is a remarkable manifestation of krishna's mercy that that krishna wants to elevate us somehow or the other even if you can't surrender to me you surrender to somebody else and by that you become elevated and eventually you will come to me so it's not polytheistic 
Nor is it pantheistic. Pantheistic means everything is God. Everything is everything God? Well, everything is God's. And God is present in everything. But everything is not God. As in the 7th chapter, Krishna says, uh, 20th verse, Bahunam Janmanamante Jnanavan Maam Prapadyate Vasudeva Sarvamiti Samhatma Sudurlava. So it's a very important verse. Krishna says, Vasudeva Sarvamiti. That God, Vasudeva is everything. But therefore, what should you do? He doesn't say, therefore, Jnanavam Sarvam Prapadyate. He says, Jnanavan Maam Prapadyate. You see the difference? Yes, God is everything, but that doesn't mean you surrender to everything. That means you surrender to God. Narasimhadev came out of the pillar, Prahlad didn't go and worship the pillar. He worshipped Narasimhadev. <laughs> so, God is not everything, God is present in everything, and God can manifest from everything. So, it's not that we worship everything, we worship God. So, one time one devotee Ashra Prabhupada, Prabhupada, when in the Bhagavatam we describe, we go and talk with the scholars and the intelligent people and we tell them that uh, that this uh, Maharaj Ugrasen had millions and millions of servants and bodyguards. Uh, they don't believe us. So what should we do? So Prabhupada said, in the entire Bhagavatam, is that the only thing that you can tell people? <laughs> So, the point is that actually the Bhagavatam contains a lot but we should present in a way that people can develop faith. Now, one aspect of the ninth offense is to instruct a faithless person about the glory of the holy name means we should not tell people things which they cannot have faith in right now. We should systematically done the philosophy by which they can develop faith. But of course, one aspect is indeed to understand that God has Achintya Shakti. He has inconceivable energy. Mm, I have this website, The Spiritual Scientist, where many times people ask me questions. So, recently I got a question. Mm, that is, can God commit suicide? <laughs> Just look at the tamasic, frustrated level of consciousness of the person. You know? <laughs> So, you know, if I am feeling like committing suicide, I go and take shelter of God, I can be saved. But I am thinking, will God commit suicide? <laughs> so then I did a little study. And I found that basically, this question originates from skeptics who try to challenge God's omnipotence. They say, They say, if you say God can do everything, they try to screw out things which God cannot do. And they try to prove, therefore, God cannot be omnipotent. So, they say, God, can God make a square circle? <laughs> can God make a square circle? So, now, there are two kinds of impossibilities. There are practical impossibilities and there are logical impossibilities. Practical impossibility means what? Like, we say that Krishna lifted Govardhan. Now, for us, it's practically impossible. But, it's possible if somebody has sufficient strength. You know, if I lift this glass, if an ant is going along over there, how does he lift this glass? So, on the scale of the ant, the lifting the glass is practically impossible. But at another scale, lifting of the glass is possible. 
So similarly, at our scale, lifting of Govardhan may be practically impossible, but at Krishna's scale, with his infinite strength, it is practically possible. So practically impossible can be made possible by Krishna. But what about that which is logically impossible? Like say this question of can God make a round square, round square circle or a circular square or whatever. All these things. So we have to understand that logic is not restricting God. Logic is what restricts our understanding of God. God has made this world to function in a logical way by which we can function and understand. You know, if everybody could start doing everything, we would not be able to function. Suddenly, say once, and devotee is sitting here and he flies away from you. <laughs> if anybody starts doing anything, you know, if, if people's behavior were not predictable, understandable, this world would be totally disorderly. So, logic is something which God has made for us to understand and respond. Now, logic does not restrict us Logic does not restrict God, it restricts our understanding of God. So can God create a square circle? He can. But we will not understand it. <laughs> now Prabhupada gave the same answer, he said, can God make a stone which he cannot lift? So what did Prabhupada say? He will make the stone which he cannot lift and then he will lift it. <laughs> so Jiva Goswami in the Krishna Sandarbha, one of the Satsandarbhas, he describes that God has achintya shakti. Now, achintya shakti means, he gives a very important logic, he says, if God is supreme, that means, he has to be superior to our intelligence. Superior to our logic. If we say, whatever God does, has to be according to my logic and my intelligence, then that means, my logic and intelligence are supreme. God is not supreme. So, God is supreme means that he is beyond our intelligence to understand. That is achintya shakti. And he gives several examples. So, he gives two examples of how God is beyond our conception of space and beyond our conception of time. With respect to, uh, both he gives the example of Dwarka. He says, in Dwarka, according to material vision, Dwarka is actually 12 kroshas, uh, 12 yojanas. 12 yojanas is to, uh, one yojana is 8 males, so 96 males. But in Dwarka, every queen had a palace that was um, something like 6 kroshas. One krosha is 2 males. And there are millions of palaces like this. Now, from the logical point of view, if you have 96 square males and there are 2 male palaces or 4 male palaces and millions like this, how can they fit in? So, that is Krishna's Achinti Shakti. Krishna is not restricted by normal conceptions of space. And he also says that when, when Narad Muni went to Dwarka, he went to the different palaces of Krishna's queens. And we know that Krishna was present everywhere doing different things. But Jiva Goswami makes an interesting point further. He says that in some of the palaces, Krishna was doing the activities that are done in the morning. Like he was just waking up and praying and offering charity. In other places, he was doing activities that had to be done in the daytime, midday taking lunch, and in some places he was doing activities to be done in the evening. Now it was not that Narad Muni went to one palace in the morning and second in the afternoon and third in the evening. He was going very fast. So Krishna is not limited by our conceptions of time. It can be morning here, afternoon there and evening there and Krishna will be everywhere. So this is the meaning of Achintya Shakti. Achintya means that which we cannot conceive. 
ना इफ यू से वॉट इफ वी के नॉट कंसीव इफ वी अचिंत मीन्स जिसका चिंतन नहीं कर सकते सो सम पीपल आस्क चिंतन करे क्यों फिर इफ यू के नॉट थिंक ऑफ गॉड एन वाई बॉज आई डोंट थिंक अबाउट इमोन नो द पॉइंट इज दैट वी के नॉट बाय अवर थिंकिंग कॉन्कर हिम बट बाई थिंकिंग अबाउट हिम वी बिकम प्यूरिफाइड वी डेवलप आवर लव फॉर हिम सो इन द स्क्रिप्चर से दैट गॉड इज अनोएबल वॉट इट मीन्स इज दैट वी के नॉट नो हिम इन टोटैलिटी बट वी कैन नो हिम इनफ बाई विच वी कैन लव हिम एंड द मोर वी नो हिम द मोर आवर लव फॉर हिम इनक्रीजेस सो ऑफकोर्स नॉलेज नॉट द ओनली थिंग वी ऑल्सो हैव टू हैव सर्विस एटीट्यूड बट नॉलेज इज इंपॉर्टेंट सो दैट्स वाई द वेदिक अंडरस्टैंडिंग ऑफ गॉड इज सो systematic you know by explaining how there are multiple levels of worship how there is god who has a brahma jyoti which is there is impersonal and personal also reconciled how god is achinta shakti by which he can do things which normally are not possible so we also accept that material nature acts according to laws as a scientist say krishna also says maya he doesn't say that i intervene all the time in the world as paramatma he does not as bhagwan with respect to devotees he does But as Paramatma, my adhyakshena prakriti, I am overseeing, I am supervising. Nine point ten and thirteen point twenty three says, upadrashta anumanta cha. I am overseer and permitter. So this is what he basically does. So this understanding is so systematic and complete that it's it's. When Jayadev Maharaj in one interview was asked, you know, uh, the television, why why did you become a devotee? He said, the philosophy left me with no alternative. <laughs> The philosophy is so systematic that <laughs> just cannot uh, escape unless, of course, we want to escape. So there is a saying: you know, the problem with this world is that the foolish are confident and the wise are doubtful. <laughs> so materialistic people are so confident. If I just go to America, I will be happy in my life. But as devotees, we think: Does Goloka really exist? we have doubts you know the foolish are confident and the wise are doubtful so that brings us to the last part now how we can accept we can accept this world view as our world view at a deeper level now the bhagavatam does talk about manus in the fifth canto it also talks about the cosmology which is very difficult to understand but the essence of the bhagavat world view is that we are persons god is a person and we all can have a personal relationship with god about 5 6 years ago after our delhi temple was inaugurated radha parthati temple there was an editorial in the times of india which was entitled the rebirth of krishna and this editor this editor so i called him up afterwards to thank him for that all he is based in delhi so he wrote very interesting point he said that which is what is india's number one export commodity you may say it is software engineers so many people are going out or some people may say it is indians who speak english because indians you know they are cheap labor and they also know english but it is if you go to if you go to cambodia you go to guatemala you go to kampuchea you won't find some software engineers you won't find any indians speaking english over there but you will find krishna temples over there and krishna deities so he said krishna is india's number one export commodity <laughs> and who has exported this he said it is the international society for krishna consciousness so it is quite appreciative article so he said a very interesting point why is it that iskon has spread so rapidly 
he says the chief charm of iskon iskon's philosophy is in the promise of a personal relationship with a loving god the promise of a personal relationship with a loving god yes so that is what is the essence of our bhagavat world that all of us can have a relationship with god and we can develop that relationship now developing that relationship has many aspects we'll discuss three aspects now one is we can we can deepen our relationship with krishna we can intensify our relationship with krishna and we can expand our relationship with krishna so deepening means in terms of philosophical conviction in terms of realization in terms of faith so uh, often as uh, practicing sadhakas one of the main reasons why we may develop some doubts because we find that the material desires keep pulling us the material desires keep agitating us and we are chanting we are practicing spiritual life and still we wonder why is it so many years i am chanting but still the material desires are pulling me and that may sometimes create some doubts in our hearts but if we think about it objectively there are many material desires which chanting and krishna consciousness have completely eradicated for example some of us might have been eating meat before we started practicing krishna consciousness but how many of us now when we if you are traveling on a train or a plane if you see somebody else eating meat how many of us feel tempted oh i am missing meat you know yamuna chara says i spit at the thought you no know, we can we can do that at least with respect to meat <laughs> we don't don't feel any attraction we feel like, let me go away from here i will tell request that person you please go away so what happened to that desire we had that desire a few years ago in this very lifetime but that has gone away how that is the potency of the process of krishna consciousness so krishna consciousness can remove our material desires and we can all think of meat is just one example but we can all think of desires which are just evaporated by the power of krishna consciousness but uh, many other desires especially the desires for uh sensual pleasures sexual pleasures may not go away so easily what is the reason one reason is of course that they are very deep rooted from many past lifetimes but another more important reason is that we often keep titillating those desires basically the standard example that prahlad maharaj uses of kandu tivan manasijam vishayet dhiraha that is like a scratch it's like a itch so now if we have a itch and if we stop scratching the uh, if we scratch uh, scratching that particular sore and if we apply medicine what will happen is the itch will go away and that's what happened with respect to desires like for the desire for meat eating as soon as we started started to practice krishna we just gave it up completely and because we gave it up that particular boil got cured but with respect to many other desires we apply the ointment and we keep scratching the itch also we keep secretly periodically scratching the itch and because of that it appears as if so many years i am chanting but still the, the desire is still there yes it's we are so we are applying the medicine for so many years but along with that we are also scratching the itch so if so jayadeep maharaj was telling in one class he says what is this uh, star tv and internet he says it is all sick people scratching their itches and other people watching to become sick <laughs> that is shastra chakshu that the sadhu can see like that so anyway so actually 
by seeing by thinking about those of our attachments which we have become free of we can gain faith that krishna consciousness can free us from other attachments also and this way we can deepen our faith in krishna consciousness na param drishtvani vartate krishna says in 2.61 you get a higher taste then you become steady so we need faith uh, in the process of krishna consciousness now that faith is not just that i am not the body and the soul the faith is not just that there is god or krishna is god or there is a spiritual world at a practical level that faith means the faith that the higher taste exists and that the higher taste is accessible to me that first of all there is a higher happiness that is available and it's not that it is so far away that yes i believe it but i will be enjoying the lower taste no the higher taste exists and the higher taste is accessible to me if i just endeavor for it so that is a faith which we can get by associating with devotees who are fixed in that higher taste and the more we try to free ourselves from the lower taste the more we open ourselves to the higher taste and the more we get that higher taste then scriptural truth becomes like a experientially verified truth for us then our faith becomes unshakable the difference between shraddha and nishtha it described is that when you go through anartha nivritti and come to nishtha shraddha our faith is like a banana tree at nishtha it is like a banyan tree banana tree anybody can come and shake banyan tree the even elephant will shake but the banyan tree will not shake so like that if we can go through anartha nivritti our faith will become very strong so we have to deepen our relationship with krishna by philosophical conviction then we have to intensify our relationship with krishna intensify is more in terms of emotions all of us have our own mental homes mental homes means where does our mind go to for rest by default all of us have physical home now what does the physical home mean that means after we may go out of the home for work but as soon as that work gets over we come back home so home is a place where we return by default for rest and rejuvenation so like that all of us have a mental home that means that is where by default our thoughts go to now for a pure devotee that default home is krishna dhautatma purusha krishna padamulam namunchati mukta sarva pariklesha pantha swasharanam yatha the second canto of shri bhagavatam is described that pantha swasharanam yatha just as a traveler comes back to his home a devotee always comes back to krishna's lotus feet for him krishna's lotus feet are his home aniketah sthirmater a pure devotee in the 12th chapter of the bhagavata described as one who has no home aniketah but sthirmater his consciousness has found a home a home at krishna's lotus feet machitta madgata prana while describing a pure devotee in the 10th chapter 9th verse uh, lord prabhupada translates this machitta very interestingly he doesn't say that the devotee thinks of me he says the thoughts of my devotees reside in me the thoughts of my devotees reside in me that means for a devotee krishna is his mental home now for all of us we have to think what is our my mental home for some of us it may be sense objects for some of us some of us it may be wealth some of us maybe it may be prestige and position and some of us it may be just praised by others or whatever all of us have our mental homes and these are all mental homes which are false shelters they will all fall so krishna consciousness is not just about changing the externals we put on tilak and we wear dress we wear kanti mala and tilak that is important but we have to change our internal home and that process begins by trying to take shelter of krishna wherever krishna gives us that shelter 
Like once uh, I had asked Zonis Radhanath Maharaj this question that when kirtans are going on, uh, should we try to take darshan of the deities? Or should we try to close our eyes and try to hear the holy name? Or should we try to absorb ourselves in, in dancing? So he said, whatever way you absorb yourself. Whatever way you can absorb yourself. The principle is absorption. So Jayadat Maharaj was asking Puna, how do we become serious about Krishna consciousness? So he said, somehow or the other. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> then he explained, he said, what that means is, whatever you like in Krishna consciousness, you become serious at least about that. You know, if you like kirtans, become serious about kirtans. If you like bhajans, become serious about bhajans. If you like philosophy, become serious about the philosophy. If you like a particular devotee, become serious about serving that devotee. And by that seriousness in at least one aspect of Krishna consciousness, through that one aspect we will get the higher taste. And that higher taste will lift us up. So, we all have to have our mental homes. We are not, at least I am, I am a struggling sadhaka. So, I have to fi- we have to find out where we can at least start building our Krishna conscious mental home. And gradually as we build it more and more, then we will give up our false mental homes. And then, uh, whenever there is distress, whenever there is difficulty, whenever there is anxiety, instead of going, falling prey to the lower temptations, we will go to our Krishna conscious mental home and take shelter and gain strength and move forward from there. So, in his new book, uh, The Yoga of Love, Zulus Radhanath Maharaj mentions very beautifully what is enlightenment. The three points. He says, enlightenment, sometimes it's, you know, it's not enlightenment means suddenly a spark falls on your head and something you see. No. He says, enlightenment is a constant awareness of this world as inherently divine, of life as a loving partnership with God, and of every moment as an opportunity to offer and receive love. Very beautiful. Basically, there are three components of reality. There is Jiva, Ishwar and Prakriti. So, we see Prakriti as divine. A constant awareness of this world as inherently divine. And the Ishwara of life as a loving partnership with God. And, and with other Jivas, of every moment as an opportunity to offer and receive love. That is how an enlightened person sees. Now, we may not have that vision right now, but we can try to cultivate that vision. Now, the process of Krishna consciousness is gradual. Just like, if you are chanting in the mornings, you see it is dark, dark, dark. It's dark for some time. And then, suddenly you see, oh, it's sunrise. Everywhere there is light. So, now, the sun was rising gradually, but our realization that the sun has risen is sudden. Like that, you know, every day that you are practicing Krishna consciousness, the sun is rising. Shravanadi Shuddha Chitte Karaya Udaya. Karaya Udaya is rising. But our realization will happen at one particular time. But we have to keep making sure that the sun keeps rising. So cultivating that vision. And that comes to a last part is expanding our relationship with Krishna. Expanding means that comes by preaching Krishna consciousness. The more we give Krishna to others, the more Krishna gives himself to us. And that was Shila Prabhupada's infinite compassion. That even in his old age, he went to, from, the, from Rindavan, the capital of devotion, to New York, the capital of degradation. For what? Just to give Krishna Bhakti to others. 
and it is by his mercy that all of us have the opportunity to develop our relationship with krishna and to share that relationship preaching is not just about speaking some philosophy but it is about sharing our relationship with krishna preaching means sharing our relationship with krishna some um, that means that we by our contemplation by our realization we feel that krishna consciousness is so wonderful why should anyone else be deprived let me share this krishna consciousness with others and when we do that then the more we try to practice this bhagavata world view and share that world view with others then what happens then we get the view of the other world we can return back to the spiritual world and we see so many of shri prabhupada's uh, dedicated disciples actually leaving their li- living their lives wonderfully and then leaving their bodies in exemplary consciousness and that is the ultimate proof of the success of krishna consciousness that when we have to pass this final test we have lived our lives in krishna consciousness krishna will help us at that last moment to to transcend whatever sufferings are there by our remembrance of his lotus feet and thus if we have built our mental home our inner home before that moment of death comes then the death may hit our bodies but our inner homes will be secure and our soul will be transferred to that inner home to be eternally with krishna i'll quickly summarize what we discussed i started by talking about the importance of world views i talked about the bhagavata analogy of moth entering into fire and river entering into the ocean as devotees and non devotees both will die but the way devotees live and how they benefit the world and how they attain a wonderful destination afterward that is different because their world view is divine then we discussed about the scientific world view how are trying to understand everything as happening by laws is dangerously incomplete it may be partially correct but we have guided missiles and misguided men then we discussed about the christian world view uh, the monotheistic world view philosophically very inadequate then we discussed about the monistic world view which actually seems to be religious but because of not giving a higher taste creates people who become more and more materialistic then we discussed about the vaishnava world view how the bhagavata world view how we have to how now there are so many agents like we have so many we have manus over here devatas they are all there to help us in our onward spiritual journey if we cannot surrender to krishna krishna gives us alternatives and krishna somehow helps us to elevate us and then lastly we discuss how we have we can all uh, deepen our relationship with krishna by remembering how the process has worked in our life in the past and gain faith to make it work in the areas where it is not working right now we can intensify our relationship with krishna by creating our own mental homes in those activities where we get the shelter of krishna and we can expand our relationship by preaching krishna consciousness thank you very much shrimad bhagavatam ki jai